cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for the Burning Platform, which is our Thursday feast of current affairs things. I'm afraid there is only one subject worthy of discussion this week, right, Pumi? Absolutely. It's what's obsessed and 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 frustrated every South African. I saw Uncle uh, Potse JJ Tabane last night on ENCA. He was having a go at Eskom. Everyone's having a go at Eskom, but un- unfortunately for him, he had uh, what's uh, Ir- Irvin Jim? What's the guy's name? Uh, Irvin Jim, Irvin, former Irvin, public Irvin. enterprise. No, 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 no. Um, trade union. Trade union. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. Uh, Kosatu. Yes. I mean, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about half the time. So he was he was on moaning relentlessly. But I, w- I want to introduce someone who really does know what they're talking about when it comes to load shedding and ESCOM. And you know, it's hard to find credible voices and it's hard to find credible explanations because there's so much conspiracy theory stuff floating Yo. around at the moment. Yo. People can't, you know, um, it's, it's the old idea of like, is it incompetence? that can explain things away or is it conspiracy theory? Because very often the explanation Occam's razor is to say, well, it's actually just people who don't know what the hell they're doing. But sometimes you hear from people, Oh no, there's nefarious stuff going on. There's this one with his hands in the, you know, renewable energy, uh, till there's this going on with someone else. You hear about like sabotage. We don't actually know who to believe. And, and poisonings. poisoning. Poisoning. Oh, well, I mean, we know that that happened, but we're going to speak today. To someone called Vali Pariachi, who's in the studio with us this morning. He's a seasoned power and energy executive and professional, having accumulated over 40 years of experience in power and energy and all those sectors at all levels, operational, strategic, the lot, up to executive and board levels in various blue chip companies, both in the private and public sector. He knows what he's talking about, including significant stints as an executive manager at ESCOM and as an executive at City Power in Johannesburg. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome Valley to the studio. How are you, Valley? Nice to see you. Thank you for coming. Good morning, Gareth, and uh, good morning, uh, Pumi. Glad to be here, and uh, Thank I you. like your introduction because I definitely <laughs> want to give you credible, honest feedback, and excuse the pun, give you truth to power. Truth to power, literally. <laughs> so let's just start with, the way things are going at the moment and how people are dealing with it, because South Africans across the board are extremely frustrated. We have not had a single day this year, and it's only 19 days old, but we have not had a single day without load shedding. Last year, we had over 250 days of load shedding in 365, which is more than two-thirds. The worst load shedding schedule ever. ever. Now, I remember I got into huge trouble. It's now 12 years ago when I wrote a letter to the president, and in that letter... One of the things I complained about was that ESCOM was starting to fall apart. And at that stage, do you remember that the public enterprises ma- uh, minister was Alec Irwin? All those years ago, remember? And he was presiding over what was already nuts and bolts were already coming off the cart then. And since then, we've seen a steady decline. We've seen ESCOM turn into everything except a utility and everything except a power generating and power providing business. We've seen them increase their fees to the public, to the end consumer ends up paying double every four years what they paid four years ago. It doubles every four years. And the service is halved every year in terms of what's actually available. So somehow we're paying more for less. And 
lots of obfuscation. Huge. Very few explanations. Right. And definitely not a word of truth coming to the public. So how do you understand all of this? How did we get to this point? Thanks, Khaled. And uh, and I'm glad you asked that question at the beginning of the interview. (laughs) And uh, let me... Let me start off because I think it, it will set the scene for what we're going to be discussing uh, just now going forward. So I paraphrased the ESCOM crisis, the security crisis, uh, in the following manner. And, and let me just put that to you and then we can explore that going forward. Right? So I say my take, this is a value party actually take, mm-hmm. is that ESCOM is currently suffering with chronic poverty. Right? Well, what I mean by that, it includes a poverty of leadership, a poverty of electrons, a poverty of energy capacity, a poverty of money, mm-hmm and a poverty of the soul, and maybe a poverty of a reliable grid. Now, why do I use the word poverty? And I based it on two main reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, uh, Madiba, uh, President Nelson Mandela, in 2005 at Trafalgar Square, uh, when he addressed that massive crowd of audience, he indicated that poverty is man-made, mm-hmm. right? So, so if poverty is man-made, it can be cured or right. restored. And then, of course, I've done a lot of research on on, on poverty itself. So why, why I use those phrases in the context I've described is that the crisis at ESCO is man-made, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there are many arguments for Otherwise, but it's man-made. So if it's man-made, it can be sold, right? And then just one more point, Garrett, is um, of all those poverties, I argue that the poverty of the soul ranks uppermost amongst all of those poverties. In other words, if you don't address the poverty of soul aspect, I'm afraid that the issues at ESCOM, the core issue at ESCOM in terms of top-level performance, and we can talk about that now, will still not be addressed. So let me just ask you, because this is a, it's a great philosophical, and we need to start somewhere. And I do think understanding the whole organism, and it is an organism, it's a metastasizing cancer, but it's an organism, of ESCOM is most important. So I don't disagree with your poverty analogy, but when you talk about the poverty of the soul within a business like that, and it's a business, meant to be a business, do you mean that ethics and morality have broken down to the point where people don't have a vision? They don't have a guiding light. They don't have a a value system. Is that what you mean? Yes. uh, And I think uh, uh, it includes that. uh, But uh, the search for meaning by the employees, the core employees uh, in ESCOM, in ESCOM generation, 
is no longer when it was formed, right till the days when I was still there, right till the early 2000s, and especially in the 19th, we reached a pinnacle in terms of performance. Mm-hmm. And the difference I make in that performance and why stop now, albeit, yes, you got the technical performance, the financial performance, all of that, and I call them operational necessities. Mm-hmm. But the one core difference was that the, it was a company that reflected a high performance culture, etc. Now, let me just expand on that. Every company has a culture. Every company, your company, sure, smallest company, right? Yes. The difference between the top-notch high performance companies in the world, if you look at them, they have a culture plus an X factor. And that culture plus X factor is what I call the soul of the company. Okay. So high performance companies have a soul. And the soul is where inter alia employees, co-employees, top find meaning in what they do. Right. Uh, purpose, resourcefulness, all the good things, right? And one more point. The diff- uh, to draw an analogy with the soul, if you compare it with a Ferrari car, now I purposely chose the Ferrari because they, they, high performance vehicle, high performance vehicle, and, sure. and they pride themselves in that. But with power, it, but if you do not put fuel in the car, mm-hmm. zero performance, right? So the soul of the company, I argue, is the, I mean, the, uh, the soul of the company is equivalent to the fuel. It's the kutspa. In the old days, we call it kutspa. Uh, and the, that's the, missing at the moment. But, Ironically, they are the ones who are meant to be providing fuel to South Africa. I mean, without energy, a country cannot grow, an economy cannot grow, people cannot be lifted out of poverty, to go back to your original analogy. And we rely heavily on ESCOM, for good or for bad. They are in an, they're in a monopolistic situation where they, up to now, have been the unchallenged provider of everything that we require to power this country ahead and they are the fuel in our broken down Skorokoro now instead of our Ferrari so I mean with all of that that you've just said put into the 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 original definitions I think we can proceed to some other questions I know Pumi's got a few things to ask you but I don't disagree philosophically you're probably right and I don't know that there's anyone who's providing that kind of leadership at the moment. I, I think, I mean, it sounds philosophical when, when you start out, but I actually think it's, it's very much practical too, right? Because when you talk about the culture of the company, when you talk about the soul and the people, mm-hmm. you're also talking very much about not just the leadership of the organization, but also the leadership in terms of the accounting authority in this case, it would mm. be an individual would be Pravin Gordon and eventually Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, yes. and, and those are the individuals in any company. Those are the individuals who are responsible for that soul. Those are the individuals who are responsible for the culture, the accountability, the work ethic, the, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And they're not. And nobody talks about their role in all of this. And Cyril Ramaphosa is worse because he's been there even as deputy president. This right. was, this was the thing that he was responsible for. So, in fact, Gareth and Pumi, just just uh, well, one more point. 
I would further argue that the soul of ESCOM, let's get to the soul of ESCOM, is virtually destroyed now. And that downslide uh, started happening about 15 years ago. And I would argue that the current leadership dropped the ball in the last three or four years, intentionally or unintentionally, because, as you say, the the aspect of the soul playing a crucial part in companies, unless you've really been there and understood it, you wouldn't know about it. So what you don't know, you don't know. Mm. But that's why I make the point critically now, and I've, and I've, and I've made this point that ESCOM has to, as a matter of urgency, address the soul aspects. All right. So, who, you know, the, the one thing that I'm, I'm hearing from you, Vali, is that the solution's not going to come anytime soon, and nobody's being honest with us about that. Because that, that is a long-term goal, right? Yeah. That is to fix that deep a problem. <coughs> Is a long-term goal. It's not going to be 18 months. It's not going to be 24 months. It's it's consistent hard work, and somebody has got to be willing to do that work. And I don't see anyone willing to do that work. Or do you? Is there anyone out there willing to do that work? Do you? Well, let me talk truth to power and and give you something honest. Mm -hmm. This crisis situation, in my opinion, is going to last Actually, we're sitting on a knife edge at the moment. Yeah. In my opinion, it's going to last at least two years, oh maybe three years, even longer, for various reasons. Because ESCOM, ESCOM Generation is a capital-intensive business, asset-intensive business, and solutions that you put on the table do not happen overnight. Now, I know, I'm close to it, that there's some significant effort that's been put into it now, since the president announced the National Energy Crisis Committee and, and the plan. Yes. But the nature of the beast, the nature of of this machinery will take long. And of course, it's compounded by the national uh, global macroeconomic situation, the Russian-Ukraine war, the European energy crisis. Right. And I would also add the Chinese-US tensions around Taiwan, mm -hmm. that's going to start rearing its head a bit more, and that's going to impact on, <clears throat> excuse me, on on the supply chain issues or delivery affecting South Africa, especially with respect to major equipment and, and especially battery storage. <clears throat> excuse me. Do you want some water? Get some water for you. Yeah, help yourself. Yeah. So, all right. So I have a question. You Go know, ahead. One of the things that, that I was very excited about having you in the studio with us today is is also a, just about dispelling some myths. Mm. You know, because one of the things, in the absence of a truthful conversation, then everybody's got a theory and the theories right. are everywhere. And now that we've got Twitter and all sorts of, and YouTube and everybody is having an opinion and everybody can send their opinion. Well, I mean, a thousand uh, times around the to, earth. To illustrate before. Pumi's point, there isn't a day that goes by that we don't get a video on WhatsApp of like coal trucks lined up and this is 
what's really happening with our coal the is coal being, is sent, being away. sent overseas. Or it's like Cyril and Patrice are, you know, brothers-in-law and therefore they are trying to get us onto renewables. And then it's Gwede Mantashe is trying to deliberately sabotage things because his faction in the ANC XYZ. There's always a conspiracy theory about this stuff. So let's start with the coal issue because the coal issue is also okay. one that like drives me absolutely insane. The coal that is being sent overseas is this coal that works with South African power stations. Let me take a step back. Uh, the coal that works with South African power stations is the worst coal that you can get. Right? <laughs> and in fact, the business case of the power stations was predicated the business case for building power stations predicated on cheap coal. I mean, if you look at the Tabo power station mm-hmm. in the Free State, uh, was was built. The business case was purely on the cheap coal farm. Really. So, the overseas customers that look for coal generally want higher quality coal, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> so it's not not totally all coal sacrificing. is the same. <laughs> yes, right. But but having said that, with Simply economics 101, supply and demand, if that uh, ratio changes, affects prices. Sure. So, so, and I'm not too close to that part of it, but I would argue even the cheap coal that we're getting now is also expensive. Mm-hmm. And that's also adding to the, to the price. I mean, if you look at, uh, just at a point, case in point, uh, ESCOM's tariff increases roughly about 55% of that it's predicated on primary energy, which is uh, coal. coal aspects, coal and fuel oil. And but coal is the maximum. But for me to answer your question, now I think in fairness, uh, not all of the coal that we sending away overseas was destined for power stations because we build, we burn the worst coal in power stations. Yeah, so that's a lie. But uh, having said that, uh, the fact of the matter is we're burning coal, rubble, and rock at the moment. I mean, you you do not get any. There's no energy out of burning rubble and rock. Exactly. You know, so, this is the, and, and all that does is it, it destroys the machinery. The, breaks down. Well, the, that's another session show that you could have, Gareth, and I'll talk a lot about, about the impact of that. But uh, I would argue technically uh, a, another key aspect that's contributing to what we call load losses and outages and so on is that Unfortunately, you're getting coal plus rock plus rubble also being delivered to power stations. And, and I don't believe that our systems are completely in place to identify and pick that up for various reasons. And then as you said just now, it gets in there and, and breaks uh, the moon. I mean, so let's just, let's just talk about coal for a second because even coal, the, 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 the worst quality coal, you, you have – um, sulfates and sulfides and that kind of thing, which make SO2, which when it's heated up in the presence of water can make sulfuric acid, which then again destroys the metal components here. We're talking about massive carbon dioxide emissions too. You know, you burn coal, there's, there's fossil fuel emissions there, which are dangerous to the environment, which is why anywhere around these power stations is usually, it, it's just, I mean, if you've driven Terrible, through the Secunda or, you know, uh, Funder Bale Park. I the mean, these air are quality disgusting, is... right? And, and all of this, but we, we've been doing this for years in South Africa and we've been doing it fairly efficiently up to, up to now. It seems like it's got a whole lot worse now. And you could see if you can, if you look at the smoke coming out of those generation units at places like Kusila, you can see which ones are on and which ones are off. If you just flew over them, 
or if you saw a picture, a photograph of them, you'd know which ones were on and which ones were off. And so many of them are off so much of the time. That's why we have load shedding. Gareth, you hit the nail on the head. You should be an engineer. You would, uh, I mean, I'm, listen, if <laughs> I can, a fan of but, but, but if I can, if I can figure this out, little old me, then how come there aren't 200 people at ESCOM figuring this out and try to stop it? Now, now why I say you should be a practical engineer is that the absolutely as engineers, when we design power plants, for example, right? We, let's be talking simple language so for, for the interest of the, of the views and the public to understand it is we, we match the input fuel with the output. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that the machinery is able to accommodate that. So what I'm saying is that the coal that we've got, and, and I must admit, and I said to be corrected, previously we never had coal that was I sulfur content. We had sulfur and we get SO2. But it was not I sulfur contained coal as I see in the media now, but leave that aside. So top performing power stations, which we were, mm-hmm. I mean, we reflected 90% availability in the late nineties and so on. Mm-hmm. What we did very well into Alia is that we were able to synchronize and synergize. Let's call it the worst coal that we're burning. Mm-hmm with the operations of the plant. So our operators were trained, our engineers, system engineers were trained so that we could synchronize the poor coal quality. Let's take the low CV of a coal Mm -hmm. and aligned the operation of the unit, the six units, so that it maximized its megawatt outputs. Right. Right. So that's that's a fine art, and uh, let's go. We prided ourselves globally in doing that, sure. right? Uh, but that's on the <clears> assumption <throat> that we only had coal, and not rock and rubbles, right? Uh, but even if you did not have rock and rubbles now, but you had poor coal, and you did not, were not able to synchronize the performance of the unit mm. with that poor coal you would get poor megawatts coming. I call it a constipated plant. <laughs> you know, where you're putting lots of energy. Uh, it's like your old car. You know the old car when you have one of your spark plugs and then fire? Inject, <laughs> yeah. inject, inject. Right. It's similar to that analogy. Exactly. I'm just trying to be simplistic yeah. and excuse me for sure. that. That's fantastic. That's the situation we have. But Okay, so that brings us to another thing that kind of irritates me and that we're not being told the truth about. There are too many theories out there. Mm-hmm. And, and these are about just transitions and end-of-life cycle mm-hmm. of our power stations and maintenance schedules. <laughs> so, and these three things, I also think we are not being given enough information right. or the correct information <clears throat> about it. Is there a, um, in our system, right? Are we, are we really, and we've just had a couple of power stations built too, even, and that's a story for another day, the amounts there and the specifications around that. But are we also using inefficient old power stations? And that's why so many breakdowns and that the maintenance schedule has not been as vigorous as it should be for the age of power station that we have. Pumi, you raised 
Some excellent questions. You should be Garrett's assistant. You need an engineer. You should be a technician. <laughs> it is. It is some. It is. It is some expression. It is some uh, statement on Eskom that Pumi and I would be valuable. It's, it's very sad. Really. And 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 I think we're getting closer to the problem here because a lot of people in the comments are saying, "I'll, I'll let you answer Pumi's question in just a second, Valley." But you know, someone says here, "It's not Eskom. It's the ANC and their ethos that has permeated into Eskom that has created this problem." I don't think that's a bad analysis, frankly. If you don't believe in merit, if you don't believe in expertise, if you believe in catered deployment, you're going to put people in who don't know what the hell they're doing. They're going to be overwhelmed. And in their incompetence, they'll make either poor decisions or no decisions. And in an organization where you need to constantly be thinking about things because there are consequences to inaction, maintenance being one of them, that this is inevitable. I would uh, just, uh, just before I answer Fumi's question, I would lump all that as impacting on the soul of the company. Right. Mm. So whatever extraneous factors you're getting, and I'm not, and I'm not talking on the merits or demerits of the last comment you made politically. I don't want to get into that argument. Sure. But, but I would lump all of that into the human development, human aspect as a soul. Right. So okay. Can, okay. Okay. Because if, if that condition. Fair enough. Okay. But let me get back to your assistant here, uh, technician, uh, Pumi. <laughs> um, there's a myth, and it's been perpetuated by ESCO, that old is bad. Right? Mm-hmm. Old is bad. Okay. Meaning that because infrastructure is old, it, it will not perform, albeit all the best maintenance you can do. That's a myth. Because very quickly, I can quote you case studies globally where we've got power, power stations uh, well beyond 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, performing top-notch, mm-hmm. right? The difference is that they were continuously being maintained and uh, uh, efficiently and adequately and effectively, right? right? Now, ESCOM seems to have made the assumption that because we have an old fleet, and our fleet is, okay, 50 years, 40 years, so sure. young, comparatively. So you can try maintaining as best as you can, it won't work. That's a fallacy. Oh, so, really? <laughs> so I would argue that ESCOM dropped the ball with effective maintenance. Right? right. So, and that's been deteriorating in the last few years. And I would also argue that with the focus on the just energy transition, and I'll talk about this now with more, I think that also contributed to dropping the ball on these coal-fired power stations, right? Okay. Comparatively. Sure. So just to finish up that argument, old is not bad. So if ESCOM continued to maintain effectively and efficiently maintain these coal-fired fleets, uh, we, wouldn't units, have a, we 15, wouldn't have a problem. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had to the extent that we had now. Right. Let's, uh, if you allow me, let's talk about the, 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 the jet situation and the net zero yeah. goal mm. and the balanced jet. Okay. Now, let me get this out of the way. I'm a firm supporter of jet. We need to move in a just energy transition, uh, scenario. Uh, renewables. I'm glad you explained that. Right. I, I didn't know what jet was until right. you explained just energy it. transition. In other words, simple, for simply it means moving to green right. qualities, solar, wind, etc. Okay. Now, 
we must just be careful that when we do that, we don't throw the baby away with the bathwater. Right. And I say that contextually. Mm-hmm. Because South Africa is unlike Europe, the US, uh, UK, even Asia. Uh, although Asia, we're close to them in certain social economic conditions. We have uh, overseas, they have 1% poor people. Right. We have 1% rich people. Right. And we have mass- massive uh, inequality. inequality, and we all know that, right? There seems to be seemingly a significant push to move to a just energy transition scenario with a net zero like yesterday. Mm. Right? It's impossible. Now, net zero is a 40, 50 year right. scenario. Mm. Before that, we have a significant crisis, right? Now, South Africa, and I'm just jumping a bit in interest of time, South Africa is endowed, fortunately or unfortunately, with lots of cheap coal. Absolutely. Right? And we also done well what we call, and I'm using another term here called dispatchable technologies and non-dispatchable. So dispatchable technologies very simply includes coal, nuclear, hydro, gas. Okay. Non-dispatchable means renewables. Right? right. Now, dispatchable means when the operator at the power station presses the button, we get electrons on the other side, even here in the studio. Right. Non-dispatchable, like renewables, you can't do that, right? Because you, you've got to have backup facilities. And and uh, non-dispatchable, the sun, wind doesn't uh, blow and shine and blow in 24 hours. So that's a difference. Got you. Now, there's also a view uh that that you could solve this crisis by flooding the grid with renewables right you cannot do that so you've got to have a a, a mix of renewables mm-hmm. uh, non dispatchable and dispatchable technologies so we when i say that you've got to have a a balanced energy mix right now, I would argue that South Africa, at the highest level, should have confirmed or firmed up on what that energy mix is. Mm. In other words, the ratio between dispatchables, non-dispatchables, and even going granular, right? Yes. And that's why we're having this debate. Now, as an energy professional myself, I would say that in the South African context, and definitely in the crisis situation, you cannot obviate and negate at the expense of renewables <clears throat> the dispatchable technology. Mm. Now, what I mean by that, you got to bring in coal. Of course. Now, coal, and I don't mean coal, and I'm not making a case for coal per se. I'm saying clean coal technologies. The argument being made, oh, it's been tried overseas. It's expensive. I'm saying in the crisis situation, in the crisis situation, let's really look at the business case. Because South Africa, as I said to you, yeah. has got absolutely cheap coal. Right. So let's factor the cheap coal in with the technology and see what the business case says. Even if it's slightly expensive premium, mm-hmm. but if you are able to get those megawatts quickly on the grid, we need to go. Why with- not? Yeah, of course. Mm. And beggars can't be choosers. Exactly. And then same with the nuclear. I mean, right. uh, I'm not looking at big nuclear. I'm saying what we call SMR, the modular nuclear, mm-hmm. which is now coming on the market. 
Well, we uh, were we were looking at that. There was pebble bed modular reactor that were very much involved here for a while, and then that disappeared. It was thrown out. It was it was decided that that wasn't a direction we wanted to go in. Well, it's a pity. I mean, I was at ESCOM at the time when yeah. when the pebble bed was going, and uh, so I'm saying modular nuclear, 300 megawatt uh, module, is the way to go. And there's significant work being done globally. And I think by 20, 2000, 2005, 2006, we'll have that. And ironically, Gareth and Pumi, a number of our South African engineers, mm. nuclear engineers, are working on those projects. I know because I'm close to yes. some of those companies that are doing fantastic work in developing those modular nuclear reactors. Vali, this is the next myth that we are working with, and I hope you can dispel it for us or confirm it. Mm-hmm is the issue of skills, right? So we are told that the reason why Dereta, who seems to have failed up three times, mm-hmm. you know, failed at Sassol, mm-hmm. failed at Nampak, and now, you know, then given the big job of keeping like the, our lights on. He's like the Kamala Harris of South Africa. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is because we have a skills deficit. We do all the old engineers have been decommissioned. They're not allowed to work and they are, we don't have the right skill set to do the work that needs to be done. We are not geared for the work that needs to be done. Is this true? Absolutely true. But let me, let me hmm. qualify that to a certain extent. I, I don't believe we've lost the skills set below a critical mass to keep the lights burning, right? So that's important. Okay. We don't have a skill set crisis now where we've, I would say, not skills, I say competencies, not skills. I don't okay. argue that just now. So let me, let me clear that up front. We're, we're not to a stage where we have a blow, a critical mass of skill set that, that's going to uh, affect the, uh, the plant. Uh, the it's affecting it, but not to mm. that level. Now, let me qualify the statement. Um, the ESCOM business, and especially ESCOM generation, mm. very simple term, is a very complex machinery, Pumi and Garrett. One of the most complex machineries you can get. Okay. Because people, it's, uh, the argument that the grid is the most complex machinery, and, and the generation assets are part of the grid. Yes. Okay. So, now, to run a complex machinery, you need competent people. Of course. Right? Now, there's a difference between competencies and skills. Mm-hmm. Right? So, competencies is a function of skills, experience, qualifications. Mm-hmm. And there you would, I would also add in attitude, passion, sure. all of that. So, ideally, you get all of that. So, in a typical power station, typical 750 to 1,000 employees, uh, you have... Uh, incompetent or less competent. Let me be careful. Less competent people. <laughs> but, but, but you also have. It's okay, you can see. You also have now, uh, uh, a, a core skill of, uh, group of people there now that are doing their utmost in trying to keep the lights burning. Right? So. So we do have good people in there who are trying exactly. not to sabotage and screw things up, but are they in the majority of the minority? Now, That's uh, the problem. let me qualify that. It goes back to the soul of the company. Right. Because the soul, very simple term, has been eroded from 2015. Good people. Mm. I call the eye flyers. Now, in any power station, this is, not, this is not textbook knowledge. This comes from experience. I would say about 25 to 30% of 
that 750 to 1,000 employees are what we call the I-Flies. I call them the pilots okay. of the power station. They keep the power station afloat, right, performing-wise, mm-hmm. just as the pilot keeps the aircraft afloat, right? Now, those people, because the I-Flies, top-notch, so on, need the ideal conditions around them right. to give off their best, to make that Ferrari perform well. I mean, uh, uh, I know, uh, Gareth, if I drive a Ferrari, uh, I won't give it its best output as you probably would do. I know you're a top driver as well. <laughs> right, so it depends on the level Hardly. of performance. Hardly, but all right, yes, right. I get your point. <clears throat> so, so, with the soul of the company being taking a free fall, destroyed over the years, lots of those competent people have left sure. ESCOM. Uh, there's an argument made, it's not proven statistically. We probably got about 5 to 10% of those, what I call pilots, left at the power station. Still a critical mess, right? Mm. And and they're keeping the lights burning together with the other uh, And you say that is a critical mess. That is sufficient. Well, uh, I'm saying, well, it's, it's the I-Flyers, Plus, you got the other people there, okay. right? So, it, uh, so the wheels haven't fallen off from that, but we've got to address that very quickly, mm-hmm. right? And get and get the others to to become more competent, uh, get their soul restored, right? And put it that way in a very yeah. crude way. So, to answer your question, that's taken a knock in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a. <laughs> uh, I'm told that if you go to the Philippines. There's a town there where uh, more Afrikaans is spoken than uh, the local Philippines language. In the Philippines? In the Philippines! <laughs> <laughs> because the Philippines have taken a lot of our ESCOM generation people uh, into that, uh, uh, either in the private power station or in the state, uh, mm. the equivalent of the ESCOM power stations there. So, so I'm told from reliable sources that if you go in the town, and you speak Afrikaans and learn Afrikaans, you can, you can go through go the town anywhere. easily. So, all right, all of this notwithstanding, I'm still confused because financially the place is a disaster as well. So let's just pay some attention to the money for a second. We've, we've kind of talked about coal. We've kind of talked about maintenance. We've kind of talked about skills. And we're never going to get to the bottom of any of these things in an hour-long discussion. But I want to touch on as much of it as possible. Financially, the place has been mismanaged like a bad Spaza shop. Not like a good Spaza shop. Most Spaza shops that have survived in South Africa have had to do so through the most arduous of circumstances, including not having electricity to keep things refrigerated. But let's just look at the finances because ESCOM is in debt. Most of our national debt is due to ESCOM. How and where have they been spending this money? If not in the skills if development. If not in skills development, maintenance, the maintenance, or good coal. I mean, what, what have they been doing with this money? What has ESCOM been running like on on paper in terms of the numbers, the balance sheet, where their money is spent, where their costs are, and where their income comes from? Gareth, uh, let me make one statement first. Uh, yes, significant mismanagement, but we'll also put on the table that uh, in fairness that um, it's not completely under the watch of Durete and his team now. It, Lots of these have started. That started long ago. Long ago. So, in fairness to sure. uh, Mr. Dureta and his team, uh, but it it continued. Okay, sure. into that. Mm-hmm. Now, 
lots of the money has been gone through corruption, massive corruption, mm-hmm. state capture. So we know from the Zondo Commission report all sure. of that where lots of the money has been gone. Too. Uh, right? Enormous payouts, uh, corrupt activities, uh, tenders and, and supply deals that are just outrageous. And also that it became a bit of a, sh- a sheltered employment scheme. I mean, ESCOM became a place where people were sent to take up jobs where they did nothing and where they were rewarded handsomely for doing nothing. And we're talking about people who were effectively like family and friends. Um, again, the ANC's rotten ideology manifests in rotten practice in this respect. I don't think that that's even much of a debate anymore. Well, uh, I don't want to comment on the politics side of things, but well, I think we have to at this point because but, it's, but, it's part of the rut. You yeah. talk about the soul. Politics plays a, a, a huge yeah. role in that. But let me uh, let me make some other comments that, which which will agree to what you're saying hmm. contextually. Is that uh, the other important cause of some of the situation here is that the board and the CEO and his team, I don't believe, I've been given total freedom, flexibility to manage the affairs of ESCOM. No. Like a typical, right? Constant public enterprises interference. Exactly. So go from interference. And, uh, okay, I understand there's a crisis situation, but I think if you go beyond the shield, a compact relationship overtly, Mm -hmm. then it's a problem. But there I would argue that the board of ESCOM should have have the muscle to push back Yes, and protect the which CEO. they didn't have. Now, I can take a leaf from that. When I was an executive in the role of uh, uh, the operations and uh, engineering and customer service executive at uh, at City Power, mm-hmm. I can tell you that City Power was a highly successful company for mm-hmm. the period that I was there. And a significant contribution was that is that the board protected us as executives against the ingress, well, I put it in inverted commas, of the shareholder, because we had the mm-hmm. same shareholder, political, mm-hmm. into the engine room, mm-hmm. right? In fact, we had a, we had a powerful board that pushed back and said to the shareholder, <clears throat> if you want to come into the engine room beyond the shareholder compact, then give us directives. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one or two occasions, we got the shareholder to give us directives. So the shareholder needs, uh, the board cannot just fold up and be subservient no. To the shareholder at all costs. They've got to push back, right? And, uh, uh, and, and there must be that relationship. So that. But who appoints, who appoints the board? No, it's, it's appointed by the, uh, in this case, because it's a hundred percent government owned. Politicians. Politicians. So but then, then they appoint the board. They appoint people who they think they can manage for their own purposes. And so, people who are grateful to them and will correct. not necessarily manage them. Correct. Now so, that's, now I would expect board people to be professionals. Remember, boards mm-hmm. have fiduciary duties. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got to exercise your fiduciary duties to the limit, right? Ethical, all of that. So given all of that, the money, now, because it's a capital intensive, asset intensive business. Sure. Lots of it have been gone to reworking. Uh, uh, repairs that that were not done properly. Mm-hmm. I, will, I haven't talked a lot about the maintenance. Uh, sure, <laughs> I think I'm going to talk about the maintenance. I mean, 
uh, the money being allocated to maintenance and uh, but the maintenance is not being done as you would a typical technical requirement uh, or standard would require yeah. because Eskom argues that uh, they don't have the edge room mm-hmm. sure. probably true to a certain extent but um, so it's half-packed you where, where it should take five months to repair you, you do it in two and a half months and system control says hey, I need that unit back and you put it back half baked and so it comes off worse off than when it went in for maintenance right so that's the that's the scenario there and and we also have this additional problem which has been highlighted by a video that's been doing the rounds at social media this week that there are so many parts of South Africa that are not paying ESCOM so there are huge municipalities there are Households, there are people who are taking power illegally or are just not paying for the power that they're receiving legally because when the bills arrive, they just throw them away. Municipalities who aren't handing over that money to ESCOM, which they're entitled to, which they have charged and invoiced for, and individuals who are hooking up illegal power supply, which means that you are, you're, you're selling stuff that you're not getting your, your dues for. Exactly. exactly. Massive, massive problem. And, and they're not cutting people off either. Yeah, uh, I think um, you're absolutely correct, Gareth. Uh, I also represent an organization that represents municipalities. And uh, uh, there are reasons, uh, and I don't want to get into that discussion now, as to why uh, a number of the municipalities uh, are not paying mm-hmm. for that. Uh, and maybe we should talk about it very quickly. Mm. And um, the other reason is that... Um, uh, Okay, as an organization that I represent, we are quite clear that municipalities should should pay the debt owing that they rightfully agree to. Yes. But if there are problems, they must contest that. Sure. But 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 let's address that because Eskom has been going on the media and pushing this argument that municipalities are, are just not being responsible. I think we must be very careful, uh, v- very quickly. Uh, Municipalities are virtually resellers of ESCOM product. Yes. What do I mean by that? If you look at a typical, like if, if you look at a typical municipality, typical municipality, who, uh, a typical municipal electricity utility, not the entire municipal business, but the electricity business of a municipality. If you look at their income statement, 70, to 75%, in some cases 80% of the income statement goes to the cost of sales of paying ESCOM. <laughs> so if you look at 70 to 75% of your income statement goes to paying ESCOM, then uh, you're left with uh, the balance, 25-30% to run your business. And then you've got the aspect of cost subsidization to left with less. That's one aspect. And very quickly... With this constant load shedding, Gareth, right? Esco, the municipalities are not getting an effective service delivery. I'm not saying top notch. No, effective sure. service delivery. No, of course. So what happens is municipal customers, because they're not getting service delivery, are saying, hey. Why should we pay? Why should we pay? Absolutely. So that's exacerbating it. So it's, it's a chain reaction. So it's a reseller, extension of ESCOM's, uh, sales that's been exacerbated by the, by the economic conditions. Right. So that's why I say municipalities cannot be blamed for this totally. And the model that that's being used at the moment for 
the municipal model, the distribution model, which I call the kilowatt hour model, is a dead model. There has to be a serious rethink of this by government, right? Otherwise, this yeah, municipal but, debt is going to increase. But this, this, I want to finish the point. This increase of 18% by NASA, NASA is going to exacerbate the condition. Of course. The 56 billion will become 50 oh, billion. So suddenly we'll owe you. So the model has to be readdressed. Right. But it's because we've got people who win popularity contests and have no understanding of business, basic economics, the flow of capital, how to manage anything, how to maintain anything, who are making the decisions, if they're even making the decisions. Most of the time, they're just letting things happen and hoping it doesn't collapse. And then when it does collapse, they're going, it's not our fault. So, so because we've got like five minutes left. Oh, my God. Look I, at that. I, I, I need to ask this question. Vali, if you could wave a magic wand to fix not just the load shedding, but all of the various components that we've spoken to, what would your top three priorities be mm-hmm. and in what order? Good. Okay. Let me just preface my comments because you've got five minutes, right? Yeah. And I should have mentioned this at the beginning. South Africa does not have a load shedding crisis. I repeat, South Africa does not have a load shedding crisis. We have a national energy security supply crisis characterized by the electricity crisis mm-hmm. evidenced by the current robust or intense load shedding. Right? Right. So we have that. Cool. Right. So what I'm saying is that if you, if you address the disease, address the load shedding, address the disease, not the symptom. Exactly. So if you address the load shedding, you're going to solve the crime. Huh. So, and, and I'll make a statement here. So from a policy perspective, and people may disagree with me, and I'm not talking about the merits of ministers and all of that. From a policy perspective, ESCOM plays a significant part in that national energy security value chain, right? The most significant. Most, well, one of the most significant. So having a minister responsible for that aspect, having a different minister for the rest of the policy is also causing this problem. So from a pure technocrat energy professional policy perspective, ESCOM needs to get back to the policy department, which is the DMRE, right? And I'm not talking about the merits of performance all that, right? So pure policy perspective, it needs department to Department of Mineral right, Energy Affairs. Energy. South Africa needs to get its energy mix framed up. And I talked about it. Yes. What is the aspect of renewables, dispatchable vessels, that, right? Then the we we've got to go with a just energy, a balanced just energy transition. In other words, no, we, we've got to go with a balanced, prudent, fit for purpose, just energy transition that caters for all the conditions, job creation, unemployment, uh we we look at our current technologies, etc. And maybe if you allow me for me. Yeah. I'll, I'll add one more to that. And maybe I'll bring that to the top. We must address the soul of the company. So we got to address the returning ESCOM to a high performance culture, mm-hmm. right? And to get back to its high performance culture, we need to fix, fix the virtually destroyed soul of the company, which is a people aspect. So I'd like to just take that a step further. If you want to address the soul of the company, you need to look at the what they call stakeholder, in this case, shareholder, the single one, 
and look at and assess their values. And in this case, it's not going to get better if it's in the hands of people who have no values. And they've shown themselves to be those people over and over again, whether you're going to admit it here or whether ESCOM will admit it or where, whether voters will admit it or not. And I think if you really want to get to the, the problem, you've got to, you've got to go to this, the, the, the core of this, the soul. Who, who is, who is responsible for maintaining and, 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 and caring for the soul? It looks like nobody at this stage. If we privatized ESCOM, would that solve problems? No, uh, I, I disagree with privatization in the South African context, uh, if it's done correctly, because we have a socioeconomic landscape and all of that. If, it, if it's in the hands of the private sector, they have a particular mandate, we'll neglect that. So, but that, you're talking, that's politics. No, it's surely, not politics. Co- surely competence in the, in the case of an energy supplier, competence should be first and foremost, everything else will flow. No, from no, uh, philosophy and, and a pl- uh, policy is important. So the policy, you cannot privatize. So I'm, I'm talking reality here okay. in the South African context. But I just want to latch it to the other point you made. Who is responsible? It's the leadership. Yes. It's the CEO that must take charge of the soul of the company. And that's why I say the last three years, four years, the leadership has dropped the ball. So any new CEO that comes in, Garrett, the board has to make sure that that CEO obviously comes with all the other uh, requirements about financial and business and, and understanding all of that. the job of power generation. Uh, well, technical, that's given, but <laughs> he must, he or she must be a person that understands and no one. And that's why I say the, he must restore meaning to the company. I think the, uh, the aspect of employees trying to find meaning, which is part of the soul has been lost. All right. In the company and, and the CEO has to recreate the environment. But now takes it back. who would be stupid enough to stand for that position? Because it's a thankless, hopeless job. It really is. Even the president said the other day, he really hopes someone will. This is his, he said, I hope someone will <laughs> make themselves available to do this very difficult job. Like he's, you know, praying. <laughs> Praying to the, 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 the money sky. is good. The money is good. Well, the money is good, but the money is good. Is that and sufficient? Money, and no, no. If you're going to put get big cyanide put in your people. coffee, I mean, I wouldn't take a million rand a month for cyanide in my coffee. Well, uh, Gareth uh, and Pumi, let me answer this in two different ways. You you alluded to the one solution, the the one aspect. It'll be somebody who comes in here, uh, who's money motivated, and all of that, and he's going to say. Whatever you're paying the current CEO, I won't double that. Mm-hmm. Right? So you'll get, well, uh, from a package, right? Cost as a fortune, but sure. But then you get the other person, and, and you may not believe this, but, but there are people out there who would say, from a SA incorporated perspective, right? From, from addressing the soul of the company in its broadest context, uh, that person would be prepared to, put either hand up uh, to make that contribution. Because as you would know, if ESCOM fails, the country fails. And for that reason, I've always made the argument that although some people, some stakeholders are pushing, maybe subtly, for ESCOM to fail, so, so, so they would benefit. I would say that as a South Africa, South African Incorporated, we cannot let ESCOM fail. No, it's a national asset. So, 
I've heard them say this though about the SABC and a number of other things, and those have spectacularly failed too. In fact, I cannot name one state-owned enterprise which has not completely failed on every objective scale. But Esco which tells you something about how all of them are run. But I think Eskom is a microcosm. You know, Valley. I would say what we actually need is we need more people who care more about as about South, South Africa. Africa Inc in all aspects of leadership in our country. And then there are people who are interested in more making things work than them working and getting the big salaries. Yeah. In fact, why, why I purposely chose this incorporated because um, there are so much of vested interest, even in this crisis situation, that if you get somebody with a vested interest trying to fill that position, the status quo could be maintained or could be exacerbated. Mm. Yeah, or, or even made worse, yeah, as exacerbated, as you say. So um, one other last point that's worth making is that the gap between rich and poor will continue to grow in South Africa. The biggest losers here are going to be poor people. They will have to carry on paying the extravagant costs of energy with a diminished supply of that energy. Um, an unreliable supply of that energy, 18% increases by NERSA, and they say another 18% in the next year. I mean, it's effectively, we are, we're forcing poor people into a much, much worse situation where rich people are going to increasingly go off the grid and remove themselves from this conversation and not care when ESCOM starts to fail, which has happened in every other area of South African society. You know, if rich people could, I'm not saying rich, rich people. I'm not talking about millionaires and billionaires. Yeah. I'm talking about ordinary middle-class South Africans who have the means to be able to make alternative decisions, privatize their schools, privatize their healthcare, privatize whatever they can. And there will be business opportunities for people who will provide that yeah. service to people who can afford it. And increasingly, the average South African, the ordinary South African, the working class South African or unemployed South African will continue to get less and less exactly. from the government who promised them more and more. It's a disaster. And ESCOM is just, as Pumi says, a microcosm of that disaster. So I really appreciate you coming in to talk to us this morning because we haven't heard from someone in your position and with your experience on the show before. We've spoken to a lot of energy analysts and energy experts who don't necessarily address these philosophical questions because I do agree with you. In any company, the soul, the value system is the most important thing. If people don't feel like they're making a meaningful contribution then they're not making any contribution at all. And at ESCOM, it must be a horrible place to work at the moment. I don't know. You've got people you talk to there. It must be absolutely soul-destroying to be in a place like that. And people actively hate and despise ESCOM people. When they see them on the roads, when they drive past Megawatt Park, I said the other day I drive past there and I give them the middle finger, even <laughs> though there's no one looking, because I've got such malice towards yeah. them. But we've got to help them come right, because we cannot afford as a nation for this place to fail. And so far it has failed spectacularly. Exactly. Uh, Gareth, I think you've, uh, you've hit the nail on the head. So Valley, thank you. Thank you for your time. I hope we'll continue to talk to you. I'm sorry that we had to squeeze everything into one very short hour. Pumi, I know you had loads of questions. No, but this over. is valuable. I mean, it this is. It is. A good. And I, I hope we, I hope we have some days with power. Um, going forward, because we, we obviously all of those things we discussed and we really gleaned just the surface on so many of them are things which we're going to have to continue talking about, even though a lot of people are sick of talking about load shedding as well. And also unemotionally. I yes. Mean, you know, this is such, an, emotion, it's such an emotional 
a conversation mm-hmm. for all South Africans that that it's 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 also quite polarizing, you know. The and to have a, a sober, quiet, unemotional conversation is also just as important. In fact, just uh, just to leave you with, with this thought, uh, sure. Uh, maybe words of comfort or consolation is that I said poverty is man-made, and because this is man-made, I, I guess with the efforts we're putting in and we put in, it can be solved. Right. So, let's let's go forward with that thought on our minds today. Have an excellent Thursday, everybody. Thank you for being part of the Burning Platform. A big thank you to our guest, uh, Vali Pariachi, and to you for listening. If you want to know more, you can always find it on cliffcentral.com, and there are plenty of other podcasts that will help you get a better view and a better understanding of what's going on in our world around us, politically, socially, culturally, and in terms of practical things. Um, and we want to know what your suggestions are, too, if they're guests that you'd like us to have on in the future please let us know about those so that we can put them into the mix have an awesome thursday cheers everybody cliffcentral.com